Please keep your Bibles uh, open at Matthew chapter 8. And just as we come to consider how these things apply to our lives today, I'm just going to pray for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have spoken, that you still speak to us today by your Spirit through your Word. Uh, would you give us humble hearts to, to listen uh, and to learn? And would you give us the grace we need and the strength we need uh, to obey all that you would call us to today through these verses? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ernest Shackleton, the famous British explorer uh, who led multiple expeditions to the Antarctic. I always find that hard to say, Antarctic. Um, once apparently put an advert in the Times newspaper which uh, read this, men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. It's not exactly the most inviting uh, advert, is it? Um, in fact, uh, sorry to say that it's almost uh, certain that the advert never existed. It's kind of a myth or a folklore that's developed over time. Historians have tried to find it and they've never been able to, but it makes for a good illustration, right? Uh, it accurately captures those, what those who went with him on his expeditions were probably to expect. It leaves them under no false pretenses or false expectations about the danger that they were encountering as they headed out on these expeditions. It also accurately captures for us what we've just heard from Matthew chapter 8. It accurately captures the kind of invitation that Jesus issues to you and me if we should choose to follow him. Yet Jesus is no mere man like Ernest Shackleton. Last week, we saw him declare his authority and begin to demonstrate his authority. Now he's beginning to call us to respond. He's spoken, he's began to demonstrate, but it's not just for fun. He's calling followers to himself. He's calling us to respond to him by following him. And he's no salesman either. He's not interested in gathering a crowd. He's interested in those who would seek to count the cost with him, those who would lay down his, their lives in light of how he is laying down his life for us. Here's the truth that we will see. It costs us nothing to come to Jesus. He's paid it all. We just sang that. It's cost us nothing to come to him. What we'll see in these verses is it will cost us everything to follow him. It costs us nothing to come to him. He pays our debts. He dies our death. He lives our life, but it will cost us everything to follow him. These verses reveal that cost, and we'll continue to see it throughout these chapters in Matthew, but they also assure us that though it will be costly, Jesus is in total control. So if you're a Christian here this morning, these verses are a reminder for you of what you've signed up for. Here's what you've signed up for. Here's a reminder of the cost, but also assurance of who it is you follow. Perhaps you're not a Christian or you're figuring your way back to Jesus. Following Jesus, make no mistake about it, is eternally worth it. We'll see that again at the end of chapter 10, but be under no illusion that following Jesus is costly. It's a battle. You will be hated. 
it will mean losing your life. Realistic expectations about the Christian life are needed to stop us, to stop you, to stop me following, falling away when things get hard. Will stop us falling away when things get hard, but also know that placing your life in the hands of Almighty God is placing your hand life in the hands of one who has everything under control. So here's what we're called to do in response this morning. Follow Jesus, knowing that it will be costly, yet he is in control. Follow him, knowing that it will be costly, yet he is in control. What's the first thing we see then is two truths about following Jesus. Firstly, it's costly. Verse 18, if you look down, immediately highlights for us that Jesus is more interested in a quality of disciple rather than a quantity of disciple. Here he is in verse 18 with this crowd. He's, he's gathered, he's attracted this crowd. Uh, he has this mass following at his feet, all there to see him, yet he orders his disciples to get ready to go over to the other side of Galilee. And we see here what kind of disciple Jesus is looking for revealed in two encounters in verses 18 to 22. Let's look at the first encounter in verse 19. Really, we think of this, we could think of this follower as the impulsive follower. What we'll see is that following Jesus will challenge his and our security and comfort. If you look down at verse 19 that Anne read to us, and a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Here we have someone who's heard Jesus teach. They've seen Jesus perform miracles. They've seen him do wonderful things. And they say, yes, Jesus, I'm all in. I'll go wherever you go. I'll do whatever it takes. Perhaps he's the kind of person who wouldn't have even read the advert for Shackleton's expeditions. He would have just signed up without even inquiring as to what would be involved. And in many ways, we read this, it's, it's a good response, right? Isn't it? It's a response that desires to follow Jesus. But Jesus perceives that it's a short-sighted response. And he proceeds to, proceeds to give this man, to give us a reality check about what that really will involve. The scribe really in many ways is a bit of a pen pusher. He's probably used to a life of not getting his hands dirty, sitting at a desk, and probably was held in relative honor by those in the community. Jesus brings the realities of discipleship home to him and to us. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, get ready to embrace a life of insecurity, of discomfort, and sacrifice. That's what verse 20 says to us. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Look around at nature. Even the foxes have shelter at night. Even birds have somewhere to call home. But I do not, if you follow me, expect to experience the same discomfort and potential insecurity. We must be careful though, right, not to push this verse too far as if to say that we're only truly counting the cost if we live some kind of radical, minimalist, homeless lifestyle. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that following Jesus will involve surrendering the world's definitions of comfort, of ease, of safety, and of security. It's saying to us that we should be prepared to count the cost, whatever that might look like, even if it does come down to destitution or death. Following Jesus will challenge our comfort 
and their security. Don't expect it to be otherwise. Then let's look at the second encounter. That's the first encounter. And then verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So if the, the first person is an impulsive follower, yes, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm good to go. I'll go wherever you go. The, the second follower is more cautious. If the first encounter challenges our security and comfort, then the second encounter challenges our priorities and allegiances. As you read that, it might seem initially quite callous of Jesus to say to him, as he does in verse 22, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. But we need to note a few important things to, to really understand what's being taught here. First of all, it's important to note that in Jesus's day, the burial of a parent was seen as particularly important as it still is today. We see even in the Bible that the burial of a father and of parents is held as a very important thing. Be mistaken, be, don't be mistaken either that Jesus is not in any way here undermining the call to honor our father and mother. He himself upholds that command later on in Matthew chapter 15, verse 4. He says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Perhaps something else that's going on here is that if the man's father was already dead in Jesus' day, um, people were buried immediately. So if his father was actually already dead, he wouldn't have been hanging out with the crowd. He would have been at home uh, doing his duties. He would have been uh, observing the morning rituals of the day. So likely it's not that he's asking for one or two days off to go and bury his father. Likely it's him saying he wants to postpone indefinitely as his father grows old in order to care for him and to bury him. And even that kind of sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I think uh, Don Carson in his Matthew commentary is, is helpful here. He says this, what Jesus says here is a powerful way of expressing something we will see again in Matthew 10, where family allegiances are talked about. He says that even closest family ties must not be set above allegiance to Jesus and the proclamation of the kingdom. In reality, we might question whether Jesus was really forbidding attendance at a father's funeral any more than he was advocating for amputation back in Matthew 5. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about cutting off your right hand. Maybe we have something similar here going on. But he goes on to say, in this disciple, he detected insincerity, a qualified acceptance of Jesus. And that was not good enough. Jesus then highlights in verse 22, the kind of do or die nature of discipleship. He says, follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Well, of course, dead people can't bury dead people. If you read that verse closely, you maybe think, what's he saying there? In essence, he's saying, leave the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. Leave the spiritually dead to do something which appropriately symbolizes their own destiny. These are really kind of sobering, stark words from Jesus. In many ways, we could boil verse 21 to 22 down to this. The boat of disciples is about to sail off, as we see in verses 23 to 27. This man stands at the shore. Jesus stands before him. Eternity stands before him. It's a life that will be costly, but will lead to eternal life and reward. Will he get in the boat? Or will he choose to dither and delay? That's ultimately what these verses are about. 
The second counter is about not getting caught up in the details of exactly what's going on, but it's about delay, it's about priorities, it's about allegiances. This man was putting something in the way of following Jesus. The question for you and me is, will we put Jesus first and step into the boat and follow him now, without delay, without qualification, without excuse? So kind of reflecting on these two encounters this week, thinking to myself, why these two things? Why kind of somewhere to lay your head and the, the burial of a, of a parent? I think maybe, because is there any more basic and important thing as, as these two things? These are two things really which would highlight and search our hearts more than anything regarding whether we're willing to count the cost. If you think about it, when we talk about hardships in life, we often say, don't we? Well, I still have a roof over my head. You know, the worst thing in the world can happen to me, but I've still got a roof over my head. Jesus says to that, following me could cost you everything, even that. And then burial of a parent, is there any more significant a social responsibility? Is there anything more important in terms of honoring our our father or our mother and ensuring a proper burial? Jesus says to that, following me will demand everything of you. He's not saying necessarily don't do that. He's just saying, follow me will demand everything of you. Some ways I think we shouldn't try to qualify those two encounters too much. Well, he says you'll have nowhere to lay your head but this, or he says not to bury your parent, but yeah, does he really? Matthew in some ways kind of leaves it slightly unresolved, and I think that's deliberate. I think we need to allow those things to sit to some extent unresolved and uneasy in our hearts and in our minds in order to make us realize just how big a cost this that Jesus is calling us to, to realize just how significant it means to follow him, to, 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 to realize, to understand just how much he's calling us here to sacrifice, to embrace insecurity and discomfort, to prioritize him above all other allegiances. So the question for us is, have you chosen to follow Jesus? Will you leave things behind in order to do that? Are you willing to embrace discomfort and insecurity for the sake of the gospel? Counting the cost may look different for us uh, in different stages of life. It might look like counting the cost relationally, perhaps distancing ourselves from unhelpful friendships that would drag us away from Jesus. It might mean foregoing certain romantic relationships in order to remain obedient to God's design and Jesus' commands. It might mean experiencing division within our families, as we'll see later on. It will mean choosing to prioritize your faith family over and above other friendships and even immediate family, which sometimes we think does a disservice to them, but actually it points them to the, the priority and the person of Jesus, which is for their eternal good. Maybe it'll be a financial cost. It means being sacrificially generous to those in need around you, to the work of the gospel, leading to a more modest yet eternally joyful lifestyle. Or maybe it means counting the cost in the workplace. You face pressure for taking a gracious stand, perhaps on things like ethical issues, or you forgo career advancement because you aren't willing to step on others or because you're not willing to sacrifice time with your family and service within the church in order to get where you want to go. Perhaps it's the cost of time, gathering together, serving others, sacrificing, 
choosing to shape our calendars around following Jesus rather than squeezing Jesus into our calendars. The rest of Matthew will be thinking about the various aspects that we're called to count the cost in, things like persecution and family division further on. But here's the question for us this morning. What kind of disciple are you? Are you the impulsive? Are you the cautious? Are you counting the cost? To the believer, these verses say, keep counting the cost. Don't become a delayer. Don't prize material comfort and security. To the new believer, these verses say, following Jesus is costly. Know that. You've signed up. You've made the profession. You've got baptized. It's time to count that cost. It's time to follow Jesus. It's time to get on with obeying his commands, no matter, no matter what would come your way. To the unbeliever or those exploring faith, following Jesus is eternally worth it. But I would be failing you if I told you it was going to be easy. And perhaps as a church, these verses remind us that as we seek to disciple one another and as we seek to proclaim the gospel to those around us, we aren't here to gather a crowd for the sake of it. We exist to make disciples. We must be more committed, like Jesus was and his apostles, to making a quality of disciple, not a quantity of disciple. In how we evangelize and disciple, we must emphasize, yes, that it's worth it, but we must not gather people under false pretenses or without setting biblical expectations. Otherwise, all we'll do is create a bunch of fair-weather followers who fall away and don't endure and will water down the gospel to a watching world. We wouldn't be faithful. J.C. Ryle, the uh, Anglican bishop, says this about these verses, and these will be on the screen for you. I'm just going to read through them slowly. It's a reasonably uh, decent-sized quote, but I think what he says here is really helpful. Just take time as I read through this to meditate on this and what it means for you. Talking about the two encounters, he says, they ought to be well weighed by all professing Christians. They teach us plainly that people who show a desire to come forward and profess themselves true disciples of Christ should be warned plainly to count the cost before they begin. Are they prepared to endure hardship? Are they ready to carry the cross? If not, they are not yet fit to begin. He goes on to say, Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and to talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength and that there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace. Let us remember this. Let us keep back nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. Following Jesus is costly. Make no mistake about it. Perhaps that leaves you fearful. Perhaps that leaves you doubtful. Perhaps that leaves you concerned. I think it's no mistake that Jesus follows up this call to costly discipleship with a glorious display of his divine authority in order to assure us and give us peace. That's what we see next. Two truths about following Jesus. Firstly, it's costly. 
But secondly, verses 23 to 27, he's in control. If you look down with me. Verse 23, so he's issued the call to discipleship and then he gets into the boat and when he does so, his disciples who followed him get him with him. And behold, verse 24, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and sea and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? So the, the picture here is not just of some kind of little shaky, rocky boat journey. No, the, the boat they're traveling in is being swamped by waves. The storm is described here as being great. The disciples thought they were going to die. And, and as a number of them, at least, were significantly well-experienced fishermen, they weren't being melodramatic, I guess. They, they knew what it was to be in, in the midst of a really bad storm. In many ways, this picture captures the, the hazardous and costly nature of discipleship that Jesus has just been speaking about. Few circumstances capture the, the perilous nature of discipleship more vividly than a significant storm on the sea. Um, I, just, we're just back from visiting family in, in Northern Ireland at Christmas time, and uh, I had took a picture of the boat on the way back. We often go along the, 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 the ferry journey across the Irish Sea. There'll be a photo that comes up on the screen for you, um, a photo I took of, of the boat on the way home. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see that, but um, you can see a nice red sky, and the, the sea was literally flat. It was calm. Um, but it's not always like that, right? If you've ever traveled across the Irish Sea or any other sea, uh, you'll know that it looks sometimes like the next picture, uh, which was just a number of days before we traveled. That storm Pia, I think uh, that's how I pronounce it. It was in full swing. It was battering the, coastla uh, the coastlines. When it comes to following Jesus, our lives are more often like the second picture than the, the first one. We are tossed to and fro by those kind of waves. We are tossed to and fro by the waves of hardship and suffering and, and sickness or the consequences of our own sin or the sin of those against us. The question that these verses pose to us is, how are we going to respond? Will we respond with fear and doubt? Will we respond with faith? The disciples responded with fear and weak faith. They rushed to find Jesus, who's asleep in the boat, which is just a really powerful picture of both his humanity and that he was tired and needed to sleep, but also of his divine confidence in his own authority in that he knew he had everything under control. They find him in verse 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Notice, it's not that they have no faith, it's that their faith is little. After all, they did go to Jesus in order for help. So they have faith, it's just that it's weak. Jesus desires that our faith in him would be strong, not weak. And yes, faith is ultimately and primarily about the object of our faith, which is Jesus, and he never changes. Yet the Bible calls us to have a faith that actively grows and trusts in him, so that when we go through the storms of life, when the waves come, we would remain steadfast in the midst of that. It's interesting that in this account of Jesus calming the storm, we have it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
in the account of Matthew, Jesus' encounter with saying, oh, oh, you have little faith, comes before he calms a storm. In the other two Gospels, it comes after he calms a storm. I think that's purposeful here in Matthew. It points to the fact that Jesus desires to strengthen and assure their faith here. Rather than calming the storm and going to his disciples, hey, look, really, why did you doubt? You, like, look what I just did. It's less of a rebuke here and more of an encouragement. He says, do you have little faith? Come with me and I will show you that I'm in control. Oh, you have little faith. Come with me and see what I can do. Come and trust me. You don't need to fear anymore. Verse 26 tells us he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. He displays his authority in no uncertain terms. He displays his miraculous divine authority by calming the sea. Here we see in Jesus someone who is in control of creation. Few things expose our humanity more than our total inability to control the weather, although many times we wish we could. We are completely at its mercy. Therefore, few things display Jesus' authority and divinity more than causing a great storm to turn into a great calm. How do the disciples respond? How should we respond? Verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. This is no ordinary man. The answer to that question is, this is the Son of God. This is God's King, the one through whom everything was made, the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and in his power and in his divinity and in his authority he chose to humble himself in order to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What sort of man is this? This is the Son of God who's come down to earth to reconcile all things and all people by the blood of his cross. Psalm 65 verse 7 speaks of God as the one who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. Jesus is God. That's who we can trust. That's who we're called to place our faith in. So let me ask you, in what circumstances are you most tempted to fear and doubt Jesus? In what circumstances are you most tempted to doubt his promises and the truths of his person and his kingdom? What storms do you find yourself seeking to navigate maybe today? or in the week ahead? What is stopping you from leaving everything to follow Jesus? These verses speak to those questions by saying, marvel at Jesus and be assured by his divine authority. Consider Jesus who is present on the boat. Jesus who is present in the midst of the storm, who's able to calm the storm, Look to him in faith. This passage doesn't teach us that Jesus will calm every storm that ever comes our way. But it does assure us that the divine Son of God is with us in those storms. 
the one who calmed the storm with his disciples is the one who will always be with us if we're in Christ. He's the one who assures us that everything is under control. The point of verse 26, the point of these verses really, is not to leave us marveling at the sea. Look how calm the sea is. It's to leave us marveling at the sun. It's to point to his divine authority and identity. If you aren't a Christian here this morning and you haven't turned to Jesus in faith, then your reality is verse 22 and verse 25. You are among those who Jesus describes as spiritually dead. You are those, verse 25, who are perishing in the storm. But if you turn from your sin and your unbelief and turn to Jesus in faith, believe in his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, he will save you. And he won't only save you in this life until the day you go to be with him, he will keep you and sustain you. If you're already a disciple of Jesus this morning, find assurance then in the power and authority on display here. Strengthen your faith by looking to him, by taking hold of his promises, which you do through spending time hearing from him in his word, both personally and corporately, by going to him in prayer, by surrounding yourself with other Christians who will feed your faith with the truth of God's word by giving your life to serve him, by fighting sin. If you want your faith to be strong, you have to give yourself to those things. He provides those means. Avail yourself of them. Know too that not only are we to seek to actively strengthen our own faith, but ultimately God has worked to strengthen our faith by the work of his Spirit in us. Perhaps though one of the ways that he's doing that in your life right now is by exposing you to a storm. One of the ways he strengthens our faith is by exposing us to storms in life in order to demonstrate to us Christ's sufficiency and his supremacy over all things. Don't waste your storm. Don't waste your trial. James 1 tells us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Bear up under the weight of the storm. Jesus is with you. He will not fail you. He has ultimately everything under control. But allow him to do his work in your heart and your life. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He is working in you to produce steadfastness. Run to him in faith. So whether you're counting the cost for following Jesus, whatever that might look like, or whether you're going through some kind of storm in your life, or someone close to you is going through a storm, follow him, count the cost, and place your faith in him. He's no ordinary man. Even winds and sea obey him. And in the weakness of our faith, of my faith, of your faith, look to him and pray that our faith would increase. That's a prayer that he loves to hear. Following Jesus is costly, but know that he is in total control. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you this morning as those who maybe feel fearful 
or doubtful about the cost that you call us to count, or we feel weak as we face the storm that we may be going through right now. Father, please strengthen our faith. Please strengthen us to follow you and to obey your commands, come what may. Please help us, Father, to be faithful. Please help us not to be fearful followers. Father, we thank you that you display your authority and your divinity in order to assure us through the works of your Son. Father, we pray that these things wouldn't just sit on a page, but by your Spirit, you would drive them deep into the recesses of our heart, that they would capture our affections, that they would shape our desires, and that they would mold our wills. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.